Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. We're currently in the second week of COP26, the Global Climate Change Conference taking place in Glasgow. With me to discuss COP26 is Amar Bardwaj, a member of the US-UK COP26 Youth Working Group. Amar Bardwaj, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Excited for our conversation. So, I mentioned just now that you're a member of the US-UK COP26 Youth Working Group. Tell me a bit about that group and how you came to be involved. Yeah, so this is a, a group of youth that started materialized this year, very much oriented towards COP26 that was coming up uh, in just a few months later in the year when we first started. And it started out from a group of Marshall Scholars uh, which is a program that sends U.S. students over to the U.K. for graduate study. And uh, a group of us who are, were all working in various sections of climate broadly had the feeling that as youth and as people who kind of straddle a U.S. and a U.K. context, that we had certain insights and, and viewpoints that we thought would be important for going into COP26 and what would happen at the conference and all the dis discourse around it. So we decided to start this group in an effort to try to formalize our thoughts and our, our perspectives on how climate as a broad problem should be approached and try to get our perspective out there and our input as youth into the entire process. Uh, and that, that group has grown a lot over the past few months uh, since we started that whole process and it's expanded beyond the Marshall Scholarship to also include youth students or people working in the US and in the UK and we've branched off into a number of different topic areas that we've developed policy briefs around where uh, people who worked in certain cross sections of climate ended up creating their own statements policy briefs of their thoughts and their recommendations on those areas. And we've worked to help promote those briefs and launch them publicly and host events to help get that, that idea out there. So that has been the work. It's been really exciting to, to, be with the group. There's been a lot of energy and really insightful uh, thoughts in the group. And now we're kind of coming to the close of that whole process as we publish the briefs, we launch them, and we've kind of gone to COP26, a number of us. Uh, so now we're at the stage of reflecting a little bit on the whole process. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And I was going to ask you about those policy briefs and about the mm -hmm. priorities that have emerged from the group. What are the kind of issues and the kind of topics that the group has worked on that global policymakers really should be aware of? Yeah. So with the, the breakdown of the different briefs, we ended up splitting into four different teams that each focus on a certain topic area within climate. So those were just energy transitions, youth mental health, lands and ecosystems, and global security. And so for each of those groups, we had a, a team sort of task, task force that's dedicated to developing a, a policy brief on that topic. And they each uh, wrote out their sets of thoughts on that. So for the global security uh, brief, for example, it was really centered around trying to adopt a broad idea of security in uh, relation to climate, uh, because often security conjures up thoughts of national security, uh, you know, threats, uh, militaristic threats from foreign enemies. But in the context of climate change, 
climate change will influence security on a number of different levels. It will include national security, uh, as we could see through, for example, terrorism being exacerbated by climate-driven droughts in the Middle East or Africa. It can also take on international security dimensions across countries, human security of personal people who are impacted by natural disasters that are intensified by climate change, or ecological security uh, as ecosystems are being impacted by the same negative consequences of climate. So it tried to promote this more holistic and broad view of security and how climate can be viewed through a security lens broadly defined, and then translate that into, into ways that we can think about addressing the climate crisis and also responding to the impacts of the climate crisis by considering all those ways that uh, both climate can threaten security and that uh, security considerations can also impact climate. Uh, so one of the, the recommendations that came out of that was about looking at how militaries are impacting climate change with their emissions. The militaries of the, the US and the UK both contribute a lot to global emissions and have a lot of potential to both reduce their emissions and, and help to minimize the climate impact there and also to help develop technologies or solutions to climate through the work that they do. So that, that was the global security brief. Uh, the just energy transitions was another topic area that I mentioned. And this one centered around the idea that addressing climate change is about a lot more than just reducing CO2 emissions. Often the focus is almost purely on CO2, but there, there are a, a huge range of different social and political and societal and power relations dimensions to the problem that need to be considered and, and tackled if we're going to reduce emissions, but also just address the climate crisis broadly. Um, so part of the brief was about how certain technologies can sometimes, uh, if there's too much of a focus on technologies or uh, technologies that haven't fully been developed, a, the expense of solutions that we have readily available today, like renewables, that can end up harming climate progress. Another idea in the Just Energy Transitions brief was about how in an energy transition, it's very important that we don't reproduce the same injustices that are already present in a fossil energy system. And that's something that can all too easily happen, even if we have a transition towards low carbon energy sources that are good on the front of reducing CO2 emissions, they can still create power structures that are unjust, particularly global north-south dynamics that are still extractive or exploitative. And that is equally as bad uh, and something that we want to try to uh, avoid and create more just and equitable solutions that also reduce emissions. And there's also thinking in that brief about how there's often a centering around the current model, economic model we have, unfettered capitalism, as a very static and unchangeable system and one within which we have to address climate. But this brief sort of tries to encourage people to think beyond that model, to imagine other ways that, that can help uh, break through many of the barriers that exist within unfettered capitalism and, and the, the ways that the current economic structure helps to entrench uh, fossil fuel interests or try to limit 
change that would cost too much money or cost shareholders, these sorts of considerations that on the whole aren't too important when you're trying to create a livable future for the generations to come. And the the youth mental health brief was the third one that, that the team worked on. And this one was about the ways that the climate crisis now in its current form and with the impacts that we're seeing is already starting to create really serious mental health challenges, particularly in youth who are experiencing those problems and who are grappling with a future that seems to be continually getting worse for them and, and for their future children. So that is a, an overlapping crisis with climate is the way that particularly youth, but many people on the planet are starting to uh, be impacted by all the threats of climate, both physically and mentally. Uh, and also, uh, there was a particular focus in that brief on people who were displaced by climate, for example, climate refugees. Uh, they had a an anecdote in the brief about Howard, who is a, America's first teen climate refugee, um, who was displaced uh, within Louisiana due to uh, climate-caused disasters. And uh, the, the way that that sort of a dislocation has a huge impact on one's mental health and is inextricable from the impacts of a climate crisis. And then the last brief that I'll go over here was uh, lands and ecosystems brief, which had some overlap with some of the, the previous ideas that I've discussed. But the idea around that one was that in addition to impacting people or impacting emissions and global warming broadly, there's a, there's a crisis uh, within the climate crisis of ecological destruction and biodiversity collapse. And uh, this is another intersecting overlapping crisis that's also crucially important to address when we're trying to build uh, a better future because the health of our ecosystems and the, the vitality of the biodiversity on the planet is critically important for both those ecosystems and the other species on the planet, but also for uh, human society to, to function properly. And the loss of that is something that's a lot harder to reverse or to solve post hoc once we decide to get our act together some point in the future. We're losing species to extinction constantly at increasing rates. They will never uh, come back or participate in, in life on the planet again. So that, that is a, another key area to focus on in addressing climate. And there's also a mention of environmental justice within that brief of how these uh, ecosystem damages and, and uh, destruction to the natural systems also have justice impacts for people living in these ecosystems or relying on these ecosystems. And this is another source of injustice and uh, unequal power structure and impacts that exist in the climate crisis as, uh, as it continues to grow today. Well, it sounds like a really interesting piece of work that you and your colleagues have done over the last few months. And it's culminated in you actually being an observer at the COP26 meeting for its first week, which was last yes. week. Tell me a little bit about that experience, what you've seen and heard. It's probably worth uh, mentioning mm -hmm. that we're recording this on the Monday, the 8th of November. But up until now, what have you, what have you seen and heard? Yeah, so I was uh, an accredited observer at COP26 for the first week, like you mentioned. This was my first time at a COP and it was really exciting. Uh, there was a lot going on. Definitely it felt a little overwhelming at times with all that was happening within the conference. 
but I, I think it's helpful to talk through briefly about how the whole conference is structured. So there's what's called the blue zone where the accredited observers and, and the negotiators and uh, people with badges essentially can go into. And within that blue zone, there are negotiations that happen between the different delegations for the parties, the official negotiators, where they start to broker through the texts of the uh, Paris Agreement that they're working through. Uh, and then there are also many, many side events that happen hosted by the UNFCCC sometimes, hosted by other third-party organizations, and also a big space where a lot of different countries and organizations have what they call pavilions, which are kind of glorified booths where they have big spaces set up where they can hold events, they can host people, host discussions and, and uh, connections between people. So there's a lot going on on a lot of different fronts in the conference. It was definitely exciting both to try to catch up on, on what's happening in the negotiations, but also just to be in a place where so many people who are working on this issue come together and can interface with each other and learn from each other through some of the side events and side gatherings. So all of that was uh, was really cool to experience and see how that all worked out. There was definitely aspects of how the conference that was set up that were uh, disappointing and from what I heard, different from how it's been in previous years. So one thing that I and many others noticed is how the negotiations were pretty inaccessible to participation from civil society or NGO observers and participants. So I, I was one of the NGO observers. And in many of the negotiation sessions, the public, the observers weren't allowed in. But in the sessions where they were allowed in, if you go into the plenary room, the big room where the main negotiations happen, there are rows and rows of tables with mics set up at each seat for each country or different organizations that are relevant to the negotiations. And then in the very back, there are uh, two smaller tables with one seat and one mic for each large group of NGOs. So there's one group of NGOs called Ringo, Research and Independent NGOs. There's another for environmental or for business NGOs. And they each have one mic. And these are groups of, or, of NGOs that have thousands of NGOs with them thousands and thousands of people represented and no real process to determine who is going to represent that NGO in, in that session. So that that was, uh, in my opinion, something that really diminished the capacity of civil society to influence the, the, the negotiations or, or uh, have their voice heard in those sessions. And I think that that limits the participatory nature of COP that I think the UK at least presented themselves as valuing uh, going into hosting. So that, that was definitely um, disappointing to see. There's, there's the excitement of, of everything that was going on and the people that you could see there and, and also shortcomings in, in how participatory the entire process ended up being. And from what you've seen, notwithstanding the fact that the participation from civil society hasn't been as you would have hoped, do you think that the key countries are engaging seriously in the problems that they have and you know this sort of brand of keeping 1.5 degrees alive i mean are they mm -hmm. engaging in that agenda not entirely the the way that i frame my thinking around this and, and the approach to the climate crisis i especially think of this from an energy perspective because that's a where i work and where a lot of the problem lies is that an energy transition is made up of two complementary and necessary pieces. There's 
increasing deployment of low carbon energy sources, renewables and other low carbon energy technologies. And then there's phasing out fossil fuels. And you can't have a complete energy transition and you can't reach net zero emissions without both of those together. And what I've seen at, at COP26, and I think was pretty characteristic of these talks in general, uh, government responses to the climate crisis is a lot of emphasis on deploying low carbon technologies and a lot less emphasis on phasing out fossil fuels. There's very little mention in the speeches that the heads of government or the negotiators give or that happen at the country hosted pavilions, very little discussion about how we're going to bring down fossil fuel demand, how we're going to curb the influence of the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel interests in obstructing climate action. It seems to be something that's tiptoed around a lot of the time. And it's not hard to imagine why there's in many ways because of that influence that the fossil fuel industry has. So that I think is, is, a, is a critical insufficiency in the approach that they're basically working towards growing out renewable energy and, and hoping that that growth alone will be enough to dismantle this fossil energy system that has existed for so long and become so entrenched in all the systems that, that we have in place today in our society. And I don't think it works that way. I, I think that there needs to be a much more intentional approach to how we're going to reduce uh, both fossil fuel demand and fossil fuel output. And that, that second piece of the puzzle. And yeah, I don't think that's really being reflected. Uh, I think another part of the, the ways the countries are engaging in terms of the, the UK's hosting in their sort of announcements of different initiatives that have come out that has been a little disappointing is it, it's often been misleading that the way the UK government has presented new agreements or, or moves forward in uh, coalitions or deals that have been made. Often there have been a couple that, that we may have heard of, like uh, a phasing out coal alliance, ending fossil fuel financing uh, from foreign foreign investment from various countries that agreed on uh, deforestation, ending deforestation pledge. And a lot of these, the, the announcements have both recycled old commitments that have been made years ago and also presented signatories that aren't really relevant to what's at hand. So there was for the agreement about phasing out coal power, many of the countries that were on the list of signatories are countries that don't use coal and, and haven't for decades. And so it's not very meaningful for, for that to be on the list. There's also many countries on the same list that agreed to the Powering Past Coal Alliance many years ago and just have been recycled and added to the total number of signatories on this agreement. There's also a, a claim that was made by the UK government about, I think it was $130 trillion in climate finance that they've gained commitment to. Uh, but if you look a little closer into that number, it's basically uh, adding up the total assets under management for various companies or entities that have agreed to this uh, agreement. But those entities don't have to spend all that money that they have under management on climate related things. They only have to spend a small portion of it. So the 130 trillion is just the, the total amount of money that the signatories have to play with, but they're still investing much of that money in other investments and also in fossil fuels. So I, I think there, there have been meaningful 
agreements that have been made, but that the way that the UK government has presented them in this misleading way kind of erodes the, the trust and the impact of those agreements. That's all quite sobering. And yeah. it's interesting to hear your perspective on this. And as of right now, we're about halfway through the COP process. As I said earlier, we're recording this on Monday, the 8th of November. How do you feel in terms of levels of hope for some outcomes, notwithstanding there will always be political spin to the way things are presented, but in terms of mm-hmm. meaningful progress out of this, what, what's your feeling as of sort of now? Uh, based on what I've seen this week and, and the sense that I have in the, the environment around the COP, I don't think there's going to be any huge uh, breakthroughs in the next week negotiations. I think that there is some value in some of the agreements that have come out so far, and there, there might be more in the future that are less kind of headline what people might have been hoping for as the best outcome of a COP, but still will push the needle on climate, I think. So there was a an announcement of a first movers coalition that the, the U.S. helped to marshal together, which was about having companies sign on, a lot of big companies in a lot of most emitting sectors sign on to procuring more low carbon technologies going forward. Uh, for example, uh, in the shipping sector, which is a really hard sector to decarbonize and one that accounts for a lot of global emissions, companies like Maersk uh, pledging to start to buy low carbon fuels and, and decarbonize their, their emissions in, in those various sectors. And I think that was a, a, a meaningful one that, that's a little encouraging. It's not the sort of huge uh, multilateral or global agreement that we might want, but uh, it's something that is a little less of a a heavy lift and still possible to get through and will make a difference. I think there's a lot more that's needed, and I don't think it's going to come from COP26, but um, I try to take some some of the wins that we can get (laughs) through these processes. Uh, I think also that even though COP26 probably won't result in, in the I'm sure it won't result in the you know the final solution that we need a, a complete pathway to get to net zero in time. I think that there's still a lot more opportunity going forward from COP26 for that to happen, uh, even outside of the COP process. So I I don't see COP26 myself as a last best chance to address the climate crisis as it's been presented a uh, a lot in the media. I think that there's a lot more that can happen in future years and outside of these processes, in particular, hopefully in towards trying to break through a lot of the political entrenchment that is preventing progress from happening. We're coming towards the end, but I just wanted to ask you, given that there are now a few days left of COP26, if you were able to get in a room, the key negotiators from the major countries, what's the kind of messages that you would like to get over them, uh, over to them about how to use the next few days and, and where to try and focus their efforts to get some agreement? Yeah, well, I think a, a lot of the sort of perspective that I want to relay is a lot of what lies in the briefs that our, our team put together with the uh, US-UK Youth Working Group. And I say that because a lot of what's in the briefs is forms of thinking that are more holistic and intersectional than we see in approaches to climate negotiations and to addressing climate in general right now. And I think that is a, a, a crucially important way of framing the problem if we're going to 
actually be effective at addressing climate and all the overlapping crises that uh, come with it. Uh, so I would I would try to to put forward th these ways of thinking around, like I mentioned, how an energy transition can easily reproduce the same injustice that we have today. How there's a lot more than CO two emissions that has to be considered and be important. And particularly, uh, I think that people working on climate at the highest levels should think a lot more about the political economy of the climate crisis and the, the climate problem in, in addressing it. And as I mentioned a bit throughout this podcast, I think the influence of the fossil fuel industry is a huge part of that, particularly in the US where I'm from. So I think this informs my thinking a lot where uh, these interests have taken control of a lot of political processes and been very effective at limiting what's possible or the level of ambition that's acceptable for addressing climate to a level that is one where fossil fuel use can continue to be maintained. These companies can continue to extract and sell their products uh, without much of a, a loss to their business model for as long as they can possibly uh, handle that. So I, th I think that political economy and those barriers that exist outside of logistical challenges or technological deployment, these more political and social challenges, I think, are often overlooked and are going to be necessary to overcome and to try to unblock if we're going to get all the many exciting solutions that we have available to us out the door and start to be making the difference that we need them to. Well, let's hope that we do get some movement in that direction. And we'll just have to wait until the end of COP to see how far we've got. That's all we've got time for uh, today. But uh, Amabadwaj, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Gavin. It was really nice talking with you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Amar Bardwaj, a member of the US-UK COP26 Youth Working Group. The outcomes of COP26 and the next steps are being discussed at two upcoming events being organised by the Foundation for Science and Technology. On the 22nd and 23rd of November, we're hosting the Foundation Future Leaders Conference with a session on how to reach net zero by 2050. And on the 1st of December, we have an evening discussion event entitled COP26, Where Do We Go From Here? Details of both of these events, both of which are free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk, where you can also find all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, we're discussing science advice in the UK, and my guest will be the authors of a report on that topic, which was published in September. Until then, goodbye.